0: If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. If you have one with you, great. If not, feel free to use one of them that we've provided in the pews or the seat backs. We are going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 this morning. So Luke chapter 18, Uh, if you've not been here before, Luke is in the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all are about the life of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. In these first four books of the New Testament, one of the things that you will quickly find as you read the Gospels is that Jesus was a master teacher. He's an incredible teacher. Now, of course, the Gospels reveal that he was much more than that, right? He was much more than just a good teacher, but he was a great teacher. Throughout the Gospels, he goes around telling these parables, what we are in this study calling short stories And in every case, they reveal something about him or about the kingdom of God. And in every case, they pack a punch, right? You can't read the parables without it hurting a little bit because that's how Jesus teaches. He teaches in such a way that it makes an impact on the hearer. It's hard to believe we've been in these parables for the last uh, two summers. And then this is our third summer studying them. We only have two remaining, one of them being the one we're going to look at today. The parable that Jesus tells us about, the short story here, presents a very vivid contrast between two different individuals offering prayer in the temple. Both come into the prayer. One of these individuals is someone seen as a very holy man, a religious leader, a Pharisee. On the other side, you have this man who would have been seen as vile, someone who couldn't be trusted, a tax collector. These two individuals come and they offer prayer. Now, if this were in our day-to-day, you might picture here at the front of the stage two people with their arms lifted up praying to God, one a very popular, successful pastor, and another a vile pimp. That would be the contrast today. And yet what Jesus tells us about this whole scenario flips everything upside down. His original hearers that heard this parable would have been shocked and the message ...that he teaches us today is no less shocking. And so if you would, let's read it together. Luke chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 9. The word of God says this. He, talking about Jesus, he also told this parable... ...to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous... ...and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector... A sinner Jesus says these words, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted it 's the word of God this morning. now, as we start into this parable, the one thing that you need to understand is that the main question being asked here is simply this: How can a person become Righteous. How can a person become righteous? These two guys coming into the temple are seeking the same thing. They're seeking to be found righteous. Now, I realize when we sometimes use big biblical words like righteousness and you see justified in this text, when we come to these words, sometimes I think some of us just kind of zone off, right? These aren't words that we see as highly relevant to our lives. How many of you in work this week talked about the topic of righteousness? Any of you? No, right? We don't see these things as applying to our lives today, but I would submit to you this morning that there is nothing more important than this quest for righteousness. You see, these two individuals, they're looking for the right thing. They want righteousness. In the Bible, that word righteousness really carries the idea of a person being approved, or a person being accepted, a person passing examination. Now, Seen in that light, I think we all want to be approved, right? We all want to be known and to be found accepted. If that's true in our relationship with other people, how much more important is it in our relationship with God to be found as one who passes the test? You see, this idea of righteousness is actually rooted in God himself. Righteousness is an attribute of God. The scriptures over and over proclaim that God alone is righteous, that he is fully good, that he is completely right, totally just. He is without sin, right? That is God. It's his attribute. But this has implications because in the scriptures we find that you and I, humanity, were made in his image. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says that humanity was made upright, We were created righteous. But of course, you know that because of sin, because of the sin of Adam and Eve and then the sin of every single one of us in this room, that is no longer the case. Romans 3 says what? There's no one righteous. No, not one. Every one of us in this room has chosen our way. We've rebelled against God. We've gone against our creator and said, we don't really need you. We can live as we want to live. We've sinned. And because of that, there's a separation between us and God. He is righteous. We are not. This is the universal problem of all humanity. So the question of this text becomes, is there any hope that we can become righteous again? That we can be found to be accepted by God, to be approved by God, to pass God's test, to be with him in relationship both now and for eternity And so Jesus tells this parable, and he he tells us in this parable that all of humanity, every single one of us, pursues righteousness to be found approved by God in one of two ways. Either we will seek to earn God's righteousness, what I'm going to call works righteousness, or they receive it as a gift, what I'm calling gift righteousness. As we think about this parable, I want you to truly ask yourself, which person am I? This morning, am I trying to earn God's approval, earn God's acceptance, or have I truly received it as a gift that I could do nothing to earn? That's our parable today. Let's look at person number one in verse 10. Again, it says, Two men go into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. So the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. What you find here is that this Pharisee, in every sense, believes that he has earned or that he has worked for righteousness. In essence, what he says is he comes to God and he says, Look what I've done, hoping that God will be impressed. Before we're quick to judge this Pharisee, let me just say this. This is the primary way that people actually pursue righteousness. It doesn't matter if you're religious or you're not religious. We all think that we can be good enough to earn God's approval. Let me just show you a few ways that this works out. I think one way is that people often just think and they assume, I don't really need to do anything. I'm good as it is. I don't have to do anything to earn God's approval. I'm a pretty good person. They think if there is a God and I have to stand before him after I die, he's going to look at me and he's going to say, you know what, Ryan, you're a pretty good guy. Not bad. You're you're not as good as some, but you're not as bad as most. Thankfully for you, I grade on a curve you're in, right? That's how we think. (laughs) I'm pretty good. I haven't done anything too catastrophic. I go to church. I do these pretty good things. I, I am a good person. If you just knew my qualities. I'm good. While some of us in this room may not raise our hand and say, yeah, that's me. A lot of us feel that way. I'm a pretty good person. Therefore, God, at the end of the day, surely he will accept me. There's another group of people that look at life and they say, maybe I'm not that good of a person. Maybe I have some, but here's the thing. Maybe I can earn it. Maybe if I just do enough good things, maybe if I just take on enough good causes, then God will see my efforts. He'll see that I'm really trying, and he will find me as someone to be approved, someone that passes the test. This person thinks in this way. They say, I am good because I do fill in the blank. I am good because I save the trees. I am good because I drive a Prius. Right? I am good because I fight for equal, fight for equal rights i 'm good because I voted for this politician i 'm good because I went to this school i 'm good because I only eat uh, non glutinous tofu or whatever it is you know like I am good because I do this here in San Francisco. you find a lot of cause oriented people right San Francisco is the city of causes and we like to take pride in that we think we 're a pretty vibrant alive city because of these causes just the other day there was a car and it said save the snakes now when i saw that i thought you've got to be kidding me have you seen indiana jones snakes are not our friends right go read genesis 3 they're not worthy of saving but this guy that's his cause he says i am good because i save the snakes Friends, it doesn't matter if you're religious or you're not religious. We all try to become good through what we do. And friends, this is a danger when it comes to Christianity. Because sadly, as I prayed for you as a church family this week, I see many of you, and I sadly believe that you are exhausted, you're tired, because even though you say you're a follower of Christ, you still think you have to earn God's acceptance. And so you do action after action. A lot of time in our Christian circles, these come out in categories that are good works. We think, I'm going to be accepted by God because I memorize these verses. God will finally love me if I just go to service every single week this month. If I serve on this Sunday... If I tithe, if I do all these good things, then God will love me. I think the danger is this, that we see ourselves as performers trying to do enough things to be approved by God. That's the story of this Pharisee. He says, look at what I've done. What's crazy is that everyone probably looked up to that Pharisee. Have you ever thought about that? He's done all these good things. Look at that guy. Everybody was impressed with him. But you know the problem? There was one that wasn't impressed, and that was God. As he looked at this Pharisee, he says, no, this is not acceptable to me. You see, in this parable, Jesus is seeking to show every single one of us in this room the problem with works righteousness. He's trying to show us at every point works righteousness fails when it comes to gaining God's acceptance and approval. Let me just show you why as we look at the text. Why does work righteousness fail? Number one works righteousness is human-centered rather than God-centered. Look at that guy's prayer. Look at the Pharisee's prayer. He starts off, God, but then what do you see? I, 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 I. Five times. If you're a country music fan, I think Toby Keith had a song, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, right? That was this guy's prayer. In essence, his prayer is, God, I am awesome, you're welcome. That was his prayer. I don't know if we can even call it a prayer. But the thing is, he sees himself at the center of the universe. Instead of first focusing on God and who he is and all his holiness, he says, God, I'm here. Look at what I've done. The focus is me. Works righteousness always is the starting point. Is always the wrong place because it's always on me before God. When we look at our own efforts and our own righteousness, what it reveals is we know very little about the God who created us, the holiness of that God. It fails because it's human-centered. Second, works righteousness fails because it focuses on the external rather than the internal. Did you notice that instead of dealing with the real problem, which is his sinful heart, that all of us have, what does he do? He points to outward actions. Uh, for example, look at what he says about his sin life. He says, look, I don't do any of these outward things. I don't rob anyone. I don't commit adultery. I don't cheat people. He ignores what's going on inside. He ignores what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, well, you know what, it's not just about killing people. It's also about your anger that's in your heart. It's not just about the adultery. It's actually about your lust." It's not just about, about robbing people. It's about your greed. It's about your pride. It's about what is happening on the inside. He ignores all that and says, but I don't do all these outward things. On the flip side, he says, but look at what I do. I fast two times a week. Which, hey, let's give him some credit, right? That's an incredible act of spiritual devotion. I fast two times a week. In the Old Testament, it said that they only had to fast one time of year. So this guy's going above and beyond. Some of us in this room haven't ever fasted other than fast food. And so this is a big deal. He says, not only that, but I tithe. And I don't just give off net. I give 10% of all I got. My gross income, 10%. I give it away. I do all of these things. This guy had checked out all the outward boxes. He had done all the things that we think, this is a good Christian. This is someone who really loves God. Look at him. But he was so focused on the outside that what does he do? He ignores what's going on in his heart. He ignores the reality of his sinful condition. And what that causes him to do is number three. Works righteousness fails because it causes us to compare ourselves not to God and his holiness. But what do we do? We begin to compare ourselves to other people. You can almost see him walking into the temple that day, looking over here and saying, Well, not that guy. Not as bad as that woman. And I'm sure not as bad as the tax collector. That's what happens when we make the wrong comparison. We begin to compare ourselves to other people, and one of two things is going to happen. Think about how this happens in your own life. We either look at somebody and we say, well, I'm not as bad as them, so I'm actually pretty good. I go to church more. I do more good things. I serve more. I am superior to them. Or we look at somebody that's doing better than us, and what do we do? We get envious. (laughs) Or we say, if I just do the things that they're doing, then I'll be good. Either way, friends, this is the wrong comparison. Why? Because God does not judge us based on a curve. He doesn't look at you and say, well, you're not as bad as that person. You're better than this person. No, what does God do? When he judges us, he compares us to what? His perfect revealed law, which is seen best in the living word, Jesus Christ. So you want to task, compare yourself to Jesus. He says, if you're going to try to to live according to earn your own righteousness and here's the law do them all be without sin good luck we make the wrong comparison instead of comparing ourselves to a holy god in his will we look and we compare ourselves to other people and then fourth works righteousness fails because it leads us to contempt rather than compassion look at verse 9 It says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what did that cause them to do? They treated others with contempt. What that's saying is when you're a self-righteous person, when you see yourself as pretty good and you you think highly of yourself, what does that lead you to do? I am better than them. It says superiority and the self-righteousness, they go together. We see that in the Pharisees prayer when he says, thank you, God, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. I'm not like them. He had contempt for those people instead of having compassion. You need to understand that's what happens when pride begins to grow in our own hearts. When we think we're something, we're going to see ourselves as superior to others. How many of you have heard of the author Leo Tolstoy? Famous Russian author. Many see him as one of the greatest authors of all time. I want you to listen to this statement that he made. He said, and I quote, I have not yet met a single man who is morally as good as I. Pretty bold, right? You hear that and you think, well, how can he say that? The truth is, all day long we go around and we think the same thing, we just don't have the guts to say it. We walk into our workplaces and we think, I, I'm better than them. I went to church yesterday. I mean, we would go into our neighborhoods and we think, I'm, I'm superior to that, that liberal neighbor of mine. We're in the grocery store. There's a long line and there's a lady just pulling change after change trying to pay for her groceries. And we're like, who is she? What is she doing? I am better than this. Some of you even on the road this morning may have had this thought. Am I the only non-doofus driving this morning, right? <laughs> I'm good. They are not. That's what self-righteousness does. We get happy when other people fail. We get happy when other people fall. Instead of saying, other than the grace of God, that's exactly where I would be. Self-righteousness and contempt for others, they go together. If the Pharisee had understood the gospel, it would have been the exact opposite. He would have had compassion for those people around him. He would have realized that the playing field is even here. We are all sinners. How can I help you? Can you help me here? But he doesn't. He has contempt. I wonder this morning, and I'm asking this directly to every one of you, who do you have contempt for? I didn't ask, do you have contempt? I said, who do you have contempt for? For a moment, I hope you'll allow the Holy Spirit to to dig into your heart a little bit to show you that. Maybe it's a specific individual from your past, or maybe even someone in your present right now. Maybe it's a kind of person a category of person, maybe it's someone with a certain body type, someone from a certain race, gender, socioeconomic background, lifestyle choice. I don't know what it is, but I would ask, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Where you have that content, where you have that superiority complex, you need to understand that self-righteousness is right next to it. This is what happens when we try to earn our own righteousness when we think we are good enough to earn god's approval at the end of the day the point of this parable is that works righteousness will never cut it does not matter how good we think we are how good we think our motives are how many good causes we're part of that will never bring acceptance before our heavenly father our sin runs too deep we are unrighteous he is righteous When we cannot get across that chasm on our own so what's the answer Well, it's gift righteousness. You see, here's the thing about works righteousness. Uh, There's a passage in Isaiah 64, verse 6. And in essence, what it says is, think about your best deeds. Think about the very best thing that you do, the very best intentions that you have. It says this about those best deeds, best intentions. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all, all of our righteous deeds are what? are like a polluted garment to God. Now, think about that. Imagine that I come to your birthday party. I'm pretty excited. I've got a gift. I've wrapped it up and I'm hoping beyond all hope that you will find it acceptable, that you will be pleased by it, that you will approve of my gift. And you get there and you say, Ryan, what a fantastic gift. And you open it up and inside that gift is a bunch of rags with, Urine stains and snot and blood. Is that going to be an acceptable gift? No, not really. It's right. You're exactly right, Patrick. It's not. It's disgusting, right? It's offensive. But do you understand that when you take all of your good works and you think this is going to earn God's approval, that's exactly what he's saying it's offensive. You can never earn my approval based on anything you do. Your, your best things are tainted by sin. But instead we see another way, and that is through this tax collector. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified, which means made righteous righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, this tax collector, the fact that he was even in the temple would have been scandalous. They hated tax collectors. Why? It's not just like he's an IRS guy. Tax collectors in this day were Israelites that had sided with their Roman oppressors. And in doing so, they would said, we'll take the taxes from our fellow Israelites and they took advantage of them. They would cause the Israelites to go bankrupt for their own greed. So they were hated by the Israelites. People would have glared at this guy as he came into the temple. But what does it say? That he doesn't go up near the Pharisee. The Pharisee's in the front. He's up by himself, but instead he stands in the back. He can't even lift his head up because of his guilt and shame. He beats his breast and he says, I am a sinner. And then he asks for a gift. He says, have mercy on me. Oh, God, Jesus says, that's the heart I want. That's the heart I want. That's the broken spirit I want. So the question I asked at the very beginning, how are we to be made righteous? We see it in this man. Number one, place God at the center. Do you realize that this man, he realizes I have nothing to offer God. My best works as a tax collector are nothing to God. Every bit of myself is stained in sin. I have nothing to offer. So he starts and he says, God, you are holy and I have nothing to offer you. I am not. He starts with this God focus. But then what are we called to do with God at the center? What do we say? We need to acknowledge and repent of our sin. Instead of comparing his actions to others or focusing on external deeds, he looks at his own heart that is the root of all of his life. And he says, it is stained with sin. And there's nothing I can do to get rid of it. Look at it. He says, I am a sinner. What's interesting in the Greek is that actually says, I am the sinner. He says, I don't know about that guy. I don't know about that girl. But I know, God, that I am nothing before you. This is a man that is broken over his sin when he is beating his chest. That is a sign of true brokenness. He feels horrible for what he is apart from Christ. This morning, I wonder, and I'm really asking, have you ever truly been broken over your sin? Not mad that you got caught in sin, not just feeling bad, oh, I did something again. Have you been broken over your sin, realizing, God, apart from you giving me mercy, I have nothing to offer? I am a sinner. That's what this man says. I am the sinner. He acknowledges it, he doesn't try to cover it up, he doesn't try to blame others. He says, I own this. This is who I am. I am a sinner in need of what? Mercy. We acknowledge our sin. Then number three, we receive the gift of grace that only Jesus can provide. The tax collector cries out, have mercy on me. In essence, what he's saying is this. God, please give me what I do not deserve. And please don't give me what I do deserve. That's what he's saying. Give me mercy. Give me what I do not deserve. What I found so amazing as I was reading this parable is that the person telling this parable, Jesus, would ultimately be the answer to this man's request. Right? When he says, Have mercy on me, God, how could God have mercy? How could God make a sinner righteous? It would only come through Jesus. You have to remember that as Jesus is telling this story, where is he on his way to? Do you remember? Jerusalem, Luke chapter 9, he sets his eyes toward Jerusalem. Other people may think, well, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to become king, to to free us from our Roman oppressors. But Jesus has set his eyes on Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows that he's going there to die, taking on the punishment for our sins, taking on our sins on our behalf so that we could have, once again, spiritual life, so that we could be forgiven. It's amazing. It's amazing. He is the answer to what this tax collector is seeking. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, write it down, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Truly one of the greatest verses in the Bible. It says this, God made him who knew no sin. That's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. That would be our sin, to take on our sin. Why? So that in him, We might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Jesus, righteousness comes to me. My sin goes to Jesus. This is the great exchange. And this is what happened because of the cross. You say, well, how does that work? How do you earn that? You don't. You can't earn that. You can't earn what Jesus has already accomplished. It is a gift to be received empty-handed. You see, this is where Christianity is so much different than every other religion. We talk about this, but I can't say it enough. Christianity is different because Christianity is not a checklist of do's and don'ts so that we can earn God's favor or love or acceptance. Christianity is the good news that Jesus on the cross has provided everything that we need. He has been righteous for us. And when we trust Him, when we acknowledge our sin and trust in Him, we get His righteousness. So that when God looks at us, He doesn't see us in our sin. He sees Jesus' perfect life in our place. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. This is incredible news. And, friends, it changes the way you look at everything. If you truly understand this great exchange, no longer will you say, How much do I have to perform to earn God's acceptance? Instead, it's how often can I serve? It's not how much do I have to do to to earn God's favor. It's how much can I serve your kingdom, God? It changes everything. So as we close, friends, here's the good news today from this parable. Some of you in this room walked in unrighteous, even though you thought you were a pretty good person. Some of you walked in here unrighteous and you know you're a sinner, but you like your sin more than you want to serve God. Some of you walk in here unrighteous, but it's hard to see that because you're a really good performer. You're an overachiever. You do all the right things. You fill out all the Christian boxes. But the message today is, here's the thing. We're all unrighteous apart from Christ. Every single one of us. We are that tax collector. We are that sinner that says, God, I have nothing to offer you other than these stained sin garments. I've got nothing that I can offer you. But the good news is this. The same thing that Jesus said about this tax collector that can be said about us. What did he say? I tell you the truth. This man was declared justified, made righteous in the sight of God. This morning, that can be said of you. God will not turn away anyone who would turn to him and trust in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. You can leave here this morning justified, made righteous, made approved, made acceptable, passing the test. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. But here's the thing. It's a gift that has to be received. You can't keep trying to earn your righteousness. It has to be received, just like this broken, humble tax collector. Perhaps you're here and you are a Christian. But if you think about your life, be honest. You're exhausted because you're still trying to earn acceptance and approval. You've said I've trusted in Jesus, but even today you come in here weary and broken because you're trying to do more and more and more, thinking if I don't do blank, God will not love me. Today I would challenge you, rest in what Jesus has accomplished for you. This is good news for you this morning. Jesus loves you. Mark Driscoll, a pastor, once said a statement. It's always stuck with me. He said this, God is not impressed with you, but God loves you. And that's so much better, is it not? Because if God has to be impressed with us, we have to keep performing. But if God loves us, he loves us just as we are today. That's unbelievable news. The greatest evidence of the love of God is that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins.